I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, brought to you by FilmDivider.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seb Patrick. And James Hunt. Uh, There is no news this week, because we are discussing a new release, which is, of course, Peyton Reed's Ant-Man. Instead, we'll be bringing you a bonus news special next week, where we'll discuss all of the headlines that emerged from Comic-Con. So instead, we'll kick things off this week with a spoiler-free discussion of Ant-Man before launching into our main spoilerific chat. So if you are really desperate to listen to some of this podcast before you've seen the film, just listen to that bit. Otherwise, just keep going and we we shall wallow in spoilers for most of the podcast. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain, actually, this week it's not a comic book concept, because honestly, next week's podcast is going to have so many comic book concepts explained, (laughs) I didn't have time to think of any more for this week. So instead, Seb, you're going to explain to me all about Superman Lives. Yeah, so um, a a long-awaited documentary has just been released, um, it's available online now, um, called The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? Which I think is a quite awkward title, and it could have just been called The Death of Superman Lives, and it would have been a lot punchier. Um, But it's a... (laughs) Everyone's a a critic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a documentary charting the um, aborted making of Tim Burton's 90s Nicolas Cage starring Superman movie. Oh god, I want it, Seb. I want it so bad. <laughs> I wish it was there just existing in the middle of the 90s that we could well, go you, back to and just just pour over. You should definitely watch the documentary because it will give you about as good a sense of of what the movie would have been. It if you're someone like me who has done a lot of uh reading into this film anyway um then it will it will go over a lot of stuff that you already know um particularly because okay so the thing about this film is that it had three main script drafts which were by kevin smith wesley strick and dan gilroy kevin smith's draft was written before tim burton came on board tim burton came on board and immediately fired kevin smith so that he could bring in wesley strick um and Kevin Smith's version in particular is very well known, partly because the script has been online like for almost as long as, as I've had the internet. And because um, of his uh, Wild Wild West story. 
and because of <laughs> yeah, his 20 minute because... long story on on an evening with kevin smith <laughs> yeah. um which kevin smith actually says at one point in the film he says the thing about me doing that superman movie was i think i learned that my true calling was not to write a superman movie but to talk about writing a superman <laughs> movie um it really if you've never seen it just go to youtube and just put kevin smith superman in and just sit there and watch yeah. what is gen probably my favorite anecdote by anyone ever i think he also um, regales it on the how did this get made podcast if you track down his appearance oh really yeah. you can't <laughs> this is to be thing. fair he, you can't stop him telling that story <laughs> like yeah. if you sit around long enough it's going to come up um, and he retells it in in shortened form here you know he is one of the main interviewees in this film but the other main interviewees in the film are tim burton and john peters the producer and obviously john peters is the main character in, in kevin smith's version of the story <laughs> so it is it's very interesting to get multiple sides it's interesting that john peters um, completely refutes the point Kevin Smith's points about him not wanting to fly and not wanting to wear the costume but when when the director uh, whose name is I think John Schnepp uh, says to him and what about the giant spider uh, John Peters immediately goes oh you mean the Thanagarian snare beast yeah yeah we wanted that in there <laughs> um, so it's it's really it kind of it, it charts the development across the three scripts so it kind of spends some time talking to Kevin Smith about his script then talks to the other two writers about their scripts and then there's there's interjections there's a lot of John Peters and there's a fair amount of Tim Burton there's a lot of discussion with concept artists as well because most of the stuff that exists from this film is is concept art and so i think i think the thing that a lot of people will have seen seb is that there was that picture of kind of a bleary-eyed nicholas cage long hair in this weird costume this weird superman costume that had been circulating for ages but as this movie has surfaced we've now seen in the past week or so Loads of pictures of Nicolas Cage in actual proper Superman costume. In proper costume. Superman costume. And it looks, um, looks pretty good. I it thought. looks pretty good. It still in doesn't look fantastic. Way. But yeah, it looks like a proper Superman costume. The interesting thing about that kind of blurry photo, there's a couple of, th- of things about that that the film brings up. Firstly is the fact that Brian Singer carried that photo in a folder on the set of Superman Returns. And whenever an executive or anyone was unsure about the direction that he was taking, he would open up the folder, take out that photo and say, this is the film that nearly got made. Um <laughs> But actually, they they find, because the, the, the film features a lot, and actually much more than you would expect, of footage from costume tests. And I, don't, I think maybe we didn't realise quite how many costume tests they'd gone through with Nicolas Cage. There is a lot of footage of Nicolas Cage standing around in a hotel room wearing different Superman costumes mm-hmm. and different wigs and that kind of thing. It's really interesting. Um, but they find actually footage of when that photograph was being taken and you see it from a different angle and you realise just how it's just an unfortunate fact that that's the one photograph that got leaked because it's this, you know, the camera flash is is blinding his eyes and that's why he's blinking and it's just this crappy Polaroid and the costume doesn't even really look like that I mean it still doesn't look great but it doesn't look as bad as it looks in that photo but the other things actually, they they talk a lot about all the different costumes that they were going to be because the other thing that made it out was the kind of the glowing Mm. neon costume and so much time and effort was put into developing that and how that was going to look for what would have been about five minutes on screen while he was in a regenerative chamber Mm. Um, but they also talk about the fact that actually the the blue costume that you see that was sort of would have been the kind of classic superman costume would have been what he was wearing before he got killed and actually after being resurrected he would eventually start wearing a black costume with a silver logo and a red cape and that would be the proper 
Superman costume from then on, which I'm, I'm not wild about, to be honest. Uh, the other really interesting thing that comes up is the discussion of casting, because I don't know how much of this was known beforehand. Um, but they basically go through who their first choices were, and in some cases people were pretty close to being signed on. Mm. So, obviously, Nick Cage as Superman. I'm on board. Um, I'm on board so far. Yeah, um, Sandra Bullock as Lois. Um, they sh- they show a sheet with a list of a lot of different names for Lois, and there were a lot of people they were considering. But John Peters says their favourite was Sandra Bullock. Um, Lex Luthor, um, they wanted Kevin Spacey. Oh yeah, um, yeah they were yeah. pretty adamant that they wanted Kevin Spacey. <laughs> Great. Um, and Brainiac was going to be Christopher Walken. Um, and actually, there's one point where the film shows footage of Kevin Spacey doing an impression of Christopher Walken at some awards ceremony. And actually, they wanted that to play into the whole the point in the film where Lex and Brainiac were going to merge together and be Lexiac. Um, but they, they, there's actually concept art of Christopher Walken's face on a Brainiac <laughs> spider body. Um, and Chris Rock was going to be Jimmy Olsen and actually oh, Kevin Smith tells yeah. a story of being on the set of Dogma and Chris Rock walking up to him and going guess who's going to be, guess who's playing Jimmy Olsen <laughs> um, oh god I like that I, I, I actually really like the sound of that movie I have a feeling that it would not have been a, a Superman that I would have liked because Tim Burton just never gives the sense of really understanding what I think are the good elements of Superman but I think it would have been an interesting take on a kind of weirdly alien outsider type thing. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting that the, I, I really like the Kevin Smith draft, but that Kevin Smith draft in terms of the start is so incompatible with what Tim Burton's version would have been. But actually the plot stays pretty close. And it's quite interesting because they, they all, John Peters, Tim Burton, and even, I think, Wesley Strick, are all very critical of the Kevin Smith script. Um, Tim Burton flat out hated it, and actually John Peters wasn't very keen either. But they kept pretty much the entire plot, and they kept a lot of his concepts. And it was even Kevin Smith who changed the title from Superman Reborn to Superman Lives. Mm. Uh, and they kept that title right the way through development. So I, I don't think they really give Kevin Smith enough credit for the ideas that he brought to it, even though they wanted to completely change the tone. I, I think it would have been an interesting film. I think it's a shame we didn't get it. I don't think it would have been a good springboard for a new Superman franchise. I think it would have been a really fascinating one-off curiosity to have had. Um, and when you learn at the end that that all of the people working on the kind of the concept and development were told when they were told that the, that the plug was being pulled it was like yeah all the budget's going to wild wild west and that's the thing that really sticks in the craw is that it got pulled so that they could make wild wild west yeah amazing so that's um so that's a thumbs up for that documentary we should all seek it out and give yeah, it a watch it's I mean, as a documentary, it's reasonably straightforward. It's it's kind of you know it's it's not Senna, <laughs> um, it's but it's it, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, and you see so much in the way of concept art and drawings and photos and footage that had never been seen before. Okay. So if you're in any way a fan of Superman on film, um, it, it's a pretty essential watch, I think. Okay. Well, we'll move on now to our spoiler-free discussion of Ant Man. Uh, But before we dive in to that, let's take a listen to the trailer for the movie, which, interestingly, may feature quite a lot of lines that don't make it into the movie. Enjoy. (laughs) This is your chance to earn that look in your daughter's eyes, to become the hero that she already thinks you are. It's not about saving our world. It's about saving theirs. Scott, I need you to be the Ant-Man. Huh. 
Is it too late to change the name? Okay, so that was the first trailer for Ant-Man. Um, and now, guys, I, I think if we take ourselves back to one of the first episodes of Cinematic Universe, it must have been at one of the first two or three, at the very least, was right when that first Ant-Man trailer was released. And it's fair to say that I think, James, I remember in particular, you were not a fan. Not a fan at yeah, all. Yeah, I, I remember doing a breakdown for Den of Geek where I pointed out that it was a bad sign. Uh, it was a sign of a lack of confidence that they spent the entire trailer making... Like, there were two jokes and they both made fun of the name Ant-Man. Yeah. And I got pilloried for it. <laughs> and now, keeping it relatively spoiler-free, the film's come out and this stuff isn't in the film. No, there is a lot... There, in fact, I think there's a lot of the lines of dialogue and, and, and just stuff like the... The um, Hank Pym line, uh, you know, if you you know, you're gonna have to go in there and steal some stuff. That has mm. changed, and it's a very subtle change that just is something that you can't put out on a on a gre- on a um, PG thirteen <laughs> trailer. Um, he basically says you're gonna steal a lot of shit, and it just makes the line play a little bit better. Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it probably does tell us a lot about how we should probably shouldn't be judging completely these movies based on the trailers. We should always try and. Uh, either temper our enthusiasm or uh, not completely hammer the thing. But um, it's very interesting that I don't think that first trailer is very representative of the movie that the three of us have just watched. No. no. It... Whereas the second one really is. <laughs> yeah, like that trailer almost seems to have been second-guessing the audience. Like that was a trailer put out by someone going, people aren't going to watch a film called Ant-Man. We better better make them... <laughs> No, we're in on the joke. Which is interesting, given that, actually, the marketing campaign for Ant-Man, and I don't want to spend too much time talking about this, but just to mention mm. that I think alongside The Hunger Games this year has probably been the best marketed movie. The 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 little the little PR stunts that they've done for it and all of the kind of little little Ant-Man and all of the the little billboards that showed up for the press Have you seen the bus stop? They sent out, um, like, stamp-sized well. tickets. Yes, there's this new bus stop... Um, poster at the moment where a little Ant-Man is physically lifting out the poster above the top of the bus stop it's been really strong Um, it's just weird that that first trailer Mm. kind of was flat but I wonder whether they were trying to kind of preempt a bit of that people aren't really looking forward to this movie and we need to kind of maybe ease them into it (laughs) Um, just an, another yeah. thing on the, on the subject of the trailers, I think is interesting is obviously the you know the real the key moment in the second trailer, and I think the moment that that everyone went, oh okay, this this could be something really good was the Thomas the Tank Engine bit and the cutaway. Mm. Um, now in the screen, I don't know about you guys because it's sort of a different <laughs> screening from me, but the screening that I was at that moment still got a really big laugh, even mm. though you'd have to assume that a lot of the people in the room would have already seen the trailer, yeah. especially given that the trailer played before Jurassic World, and that moment was kind of killed for me from the trailer yeah it was for me but I was surprised that it still got so much of a laugh from other people but then what I think is so impressive is again we're in the spoiler free section here but there is a there is another gag another related gag that hits you maybe about two or three minutes later and was so worth it (laughs) so worth sacrificing the first laugh for one of the good things about the Ant-Man trailer is that it doesn't give away the best jokes Mm. Like, it gives away a couple of good ones. It gives away what you think are going to be the best jokes. Yeah. Yeah, but there are actually better ones on top of it. So, should we, should, should we be upfront with the audience? What are, our, what are our general thoughts on this movie? Are we all fans of it? And almost, I, I think probably what would be a good barometer would be to say where it kind of sits in our Marvel Cinematic Universe rankings. Yeah, so my, for me, it's just outside the top five. Like, I really, really loved it. I think it's... 
of all the other Marvel films, it's probably closest to the first Iron Man in in what it does and how it does it. But yeah, I, I was a big fan, and I wasn't expecting to be, so I'm very pleasantly surprised. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think it's definitely in the top half, um, sort of maybe not just outside the top five for me but because i just still have even so much it's like the the first captain america and the first thor i still love even though they're not in my top five but i put it around that level i think i think it's in such a, a similar vein to guardians of the galaxy without quite having that extra special something that guardians of the galaxy has got yes, that, that nudges that. that film into you know just how much i love it um but it's like I think I think the way I've described it is it's almost it's kind of like what I expected Guardians of the Galaxy to be. Like Guardians of the Galaxy ended up exceeding my expectations. Ant-Man kind of hits what my expectations for Guardians were as being the kind of weird, funny, enjoyable one. Um yeah, it's just it's it's really slick. There's a lot of laughs. Um it's a Paul Rudd superhero comedy and it, yeah. it gets what I would have wanted from a Paul <laughs> Rudd superhero comedy. Yeah. I, I was kind of saying to um, a friend after this, in fact, Reese, former former podcast guest, uh, we were having a chat yesterday, and I was saying, for me, it's the new kind of like prime meridian of the Marvel movies. It's the it's now the movie that I think I would compare, like there is the, the half of movies that are better than Ant-Man and the half of movies that are not as good as Ant-Man. Um, it's not it's not a, it's not a big ambitious movie um and i think that works to its advantage a lot of the time um it fit the stakes feel lower than a captain america movie or a thor movie or an avengers movie but the stakes feel big enough for the character and big enough for the story and i think it was as good as i could have hoped it was going to be given all of the circumstances that surrounded it and and given that you know they brought a director in less than a month before it started shooting. And I think that is something we're going to have to discuss. I don't want to dwell on it too much in this podcast because I've read some reviews that I think have been almost obsessed by the fact that this was almost an Edgar Wright movie, but wasn't, and by proxy is then terrible and should be um, should be held up uh, in comparison to what a possible Edgar Wright movie would be. I don't think that's fair. I don't know about you guys. I think actually what this movie, uh, at the end of that entire process, ends up being is a movie that probably benefits from having a lot of its scripts written by Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish and benefits from having some ideas left on the table by Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish, but also then has the benefit of being taken over by someone else who is happy to work within a system and work it into a bigger universe and bring a couple of their ideas to the table as well. If this doesn't sound like a contradiction in terms, because I'm not saying the film is in any way flawless, but I find it difficult to see how it could really have been better. Um, if you know, if, if that makes sense, it's like if you're going to do an Ant-Man film under these parameters, then I think this film achieved about as much as you could ever have reasonably expected from that. And speaking of someone who is a massive fan of Edgar Wright and who I even I even love The World's End and I know I'm in a minority on that but I really do <laughs> um, so speaking of someone who's loved everything that Edgar Wright has done up to this point and also is a big fan of Joe Cornish um, I can't see 
how it still being an Edgar Wright film would have improved it yeah. because all the things that I love about Edgar Wright are not necessarily things that would have made this film better at doing what this film is supposed to do. And I think that Edgar um, Wright quite clearly left a lot of stuff on the table that is in this movie. It's, I don't think mm. it's fair to say what would this movie have been like if Edgar Wright had worked on it because to a large extent he did and it's obviously had some yeah. big changes since he left but... There is, there is still a sense of him in this film. And I actually do think there could be some elements where this movie would be improved with Edgar Wright as director. I think he's just... I think he's so sharp on his comedy beats. I thought there was a couple of times where the jokes in this movie just almost didn't quite land um, or were just, like, slightly off in the timing. And I, I, I do wonder whether um, some of the high stuff might have been a little bit slicker with Edgar Wright. Having said that, yeah, I, f- I feel like maybe... Yeah, I, 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 I don't think it is... I don't think it has destroyed this movie, losing Edgar Wright. I think, in fact, I, rather than see it as a lost Edgar Wright movie, I'd see it as a movie that benefited from having a, a great mind like him and Joe Cornish working on it for the best part of ten years. The thing you sort of associate with Edgar Wright is a kind of idiosyncratic directorial style. And I kind of think... If this film had had that, it would have set it apart a little too much from the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like, you can imagine Edgar Wright is the kind of auteur filmmaker. Like, he, you know, he makes conventional sort of blockbuster films, but he does it in a in a way that can't be copied. And it's sort of like, had he done that on this, it might not have slotted into the canon as well as it did. I would love to see Edgar Wright's Ant-Man that was released in 2008. You know, that maybe you get yeah. you get <laughs> Iron Man coming out in March and or whenever it came out, and then where the when the Incredible Hulk came out, actually you've got Ant Man directed by Edgar Wright, and those are the two movies that set up that universe. Yeah, just before the tone of the MCU had been so strongly established. Mm. Like I feel like if Edgar Wright had made it, he it w- either it would have been holding him back. Or he would have been pushing it in the wrong direction, ultimately. I still think a held-back Edgar Wright would be a fan... I still think he would have made a pretty fantastic movie out of this. Um, yeah, but then Peyton, like, Peyton Reed as well. You kind of look at his CV and you think, well, he's going to be competent. But actually, there are a lot of things in the direction of the movie that are inventive and interesting. And it's mm. like, it's almost as if he went, people are expecting Edgar Wright, so I'm going to have to pull out every trick I've got and make sure it's not anything less than, you know, interesting and inventive. Yeah, and we'll discuss the actual sequence when we get into the spoiler section, but there is one set, I think there, well, there's, there's one <laughs> sequence that is repeated that you come out of the movie going, oh, that's, I mean, that seemed like a really Edgar Wrighty sequence. That seemed, really seemed like it had his stamp on it. That must have been something that survived from his draft or from his version. And then when Peyton Reed has been talking about the film, and th- I don't think there's any question that he's lying because he's been very open about what has remained from Edgar Wright's draft and what ideas he he kind of lifted from Edgar Wright. But this sequence that really stands out is all Peyton Reed. It's not even from the Adam McKay draft. It's Peyton Reed's sequence. Yeah. It's, it's very impressive. So we are, we are all on board of Ant-Man. Um, but I guess we should probably we should probably get into some more more detailed specifics about why. Um, so let's listen to now um, just one more short clip from the movie, and then if you haven't seen the movie yet, go off, go and buddy watch it, and then come back and listen to the rest of our podcast. But um, if you've seen it already, just carry on. <laughs> Here's a clip from Ant Man. All right, just so we're clear, everyone here knows their role, right? Dave. Wheels on the ground. Kurt, how is in this guy? Luis. Oh man, you know it. You know what? I get to wear a uniform. That's what's up. Luis. 
I'm sorry. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm just excited. And plus, your girlfriend's really hot, so you know that makes me nervous too. And you are very beautiful, ma'am. Oh my lord. You can stop now. She's not. My... Hey, you know what? I was thinking about tactic, like when I go undercover, like a whistling. You know what I'm saying? To like blend in. No, don't whistle. No whistling. It's not the Andy Griffith show. No whistling. Okay, so we're back, and we're into spoiler territory, so we can talk about everything in a lot more detail now. I think uh, a nice place to start would be with Paul Rudd and Scott Lang. Paul Rudd's performance in general, I think, would would be would be good to dive into. But also, what you made of the Scott Lang character, specifically maybe his the, the kind of backstory that he's given, and you know whether you buy Paul Rudd as that character with that backstory. There's a. I have a, I have a slight kind of, and it's probably one of my few sort of actual issue issues with the film, which is that the film seems quite inconsistent in terms of how it presents him and his background. And there's something that I wasn't really able to square, which is we get told the story of how he became a criminal and why he was in prison in the first place. He's a Robin Hood, um, essentially, isn't he? Yeah. The film, maybe it's just that I've interpreted this wrongly, but the film seems to give the impression that he was in prison for that crime yes. which is that he was an employee of a company he discovered that there were some shady goings on he whistled blue and then he stole he stole a load of money that was essentially itself stolen and gave it back to people and that's and it, so it was a, and it was essentially i mean it's weird because it's like was it kind of white collar hacker crime or did he actually break in and burgle but either way he was sent to prison for that so he wasn't that great at it <laughs> Yeah. Now, at the same time, <laughs> firstly, when we first meet him and he comes out of prison, he seems quite au fait with prison. Like, the character that seems to come across as someone who's been in and out of prison a couple of times. And secondly, um, he's a really good cat burglar. You have this whole scene where when he's breaking into um, Hank Pym's place where, you know, he's jumping across windows, he's breaking in, he's doing the thing with the thumbprint, um, he has his idea, because he used to be an engineer, um, he has his idea with the, the ice. That's another point, actually, that he's someone who used to be an engineer, and yet at times, he has to have really basic things explained to him by Hank Pym, because, <laughs> like, when he's with Hank Pym and Hope, they're the sciencey people, and he's the dumb guy, and yet he's supposed to be a sciencey guy himself. So that's the other kind of inconsistency. But, yeah, yeah, I just I don't really get where and when did he become a master thief because he was like a white collar criminal who who had been a perfectly innocent guy up to that. You wonder point. whether that was one of the things that was lost in the rewrite. I do remember one mm, of the rumors wonder, that was circling yeah. around at the time was that maybe his like his backstory was being rewritten to make him a little bit more ambiguously like I think he was supposed to be th- like more of an out and out bad guy to begin with. I kind of feel yeah like the scene that explains what his crime was and the proceedings scene in the Baskin and Robbins where the manager talks about what his crime was I feel like those scenes were added late because those are the bits that don't really square with everything else that we learn about him it feels much more like he's more of a career criminal especially given the way that he is with his 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 ex-wife and 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 you know her fiance and stuff the guy who was apparently originally meant to be Patrick Wilson which is a shame that that wasn't him Um, (laughs) oh I love Bobby Cannavale I'm happy whenever he shows up on my screens (laughs) Um, but yeah, so that, I think that that's probably its biggest problem is that Scott is slightly inconsistent as a character. But what it has in its favour is that he's played by Paul Rudd. So, and I think James, you kind of made this. I'm just kind of stealing this point off you because I think you said it in your Ten of Geek <laughs> review. But the gaps in his character and his personality are filled in by the fact that it's Paul Rudd being Paul Rudd. Yeah, like he's got that charm. Do you think whether that James? Do you think those gaps might be more in that backstory and in that kind of? 
that establishing of the character. But actually, I'm not sure whether the Scott Lang we actually see on screen is that inconsistent. I think Scott Lang throughout the movie is a character. It just maybe doesn't square quite perfectly with the backstory well, being given. to a point, but, I mean, the thing that really jumped out at me was his return to crime seems so sort of... Like, he's dead against it, and then he gets put in a situation, and he goes, oh, okay, then. And it's like, he doesn't he doesn't hate himself for doing it. Like, and it doesn't seem like it's a pattern for him. It's just, it happens because it has to happen, and it's kind of, you let it slide because it's Paul Rudd, and he's got bags of charm going for him, but it... I thought that actually seemed quite justified. I thought it was, it wasn't that he didn't like doing the crime. I didn't think it was that, like, he was like... Oh, I really regret having done that criminal thing because it was wrong. It was more, if I want to see my family, I have to stop being a criminal. Oh, wait, I've been put in a situation where I can't see my family again unless I go back to crime. So that's why I'm doing it. Um, and I thought it was it was quite nice, um, streamlined, get, getting him back into the game and also cementing that, the, that his daughter was the, the prime motivation yeah, like- for everything that happened with him. I buy it narratively. I don't buy it as a character thing because, like, he's just—he's too nice a guy to be a crook in any way. Like, he's too, too worried about sort of what people think of him and how you know how he comes across to his daughter and his family and stuff. It's just it. Was it? I think it was. You just know, it's too—it's too Paul Rudd to be a career criminal. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and how does this square with the Scott Lang of the comics? Is and and particularly the the dynamic that they strike up between Scott Lang and Hank Pym is that is that does that have any comic book precedence or is this just a great adaptation? Uh, it's, a very, it's a very it's a very thin uh, relationship in on the page. Like for most of the last ten years, they haven't even been alive at the same right. time. And so is is Scott and do well in the comics? <clears throat> in his very first few stories, he did steal the the Ant Man suit. I can't remember if he was introduced as a criminal. Uh, I seem to remember he was kind of an Avengers sort of you know uh, handyman for a while. Like he fixed up queen jets or something right. and then it was only through hanging out with superheroes that he got access to the to the ant-man suit in the first mm. place but you know most of most of the movie version i would say is pretty much a drastic reinterpretation of scott lang and and so does it does it make sense to you to construct the movie in this way around kind of these two generations of ant-mans ant-men um around the kind of hank pym scott lang relationship i i, I like I, I mean, makes sense. I'm not sure. I personally, I like it because, and this, this is something that we talked about before. But um, as a fan of DC comics, um, I like legacy <laughs> heroes, mm. and it's not something you get so much in Marvel, and it's not something we've had in the movies yet at all. No. So I really like a narrative where you've got someone who used to be a hero who had to stop doing it for some reason and is now mentoring someone else to be the same hero. I just, I like that as a story and I think it works really well here. It works well for Marvel as well, doesn't it? In a cinematic universe where they might have to confront that before. (laughs) (laughs) And so as far as I know from the comics that Janet Van Dyne is the Wasp, is Hope ever the Wasp in the comics or is Hope, does does she play much of a part in the comics? Do you want the full comic? Shall I go full comic book on uh, you? Uh, oh, I don't know. I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> Hope is uh, a character who was created in 
an offshoot universe known as MC2. Oh, uh, she that's where is she a potential comes. villain. Uh, she is the daughter of Janet Van Dyne and Hank Pym from sort of 20 years in the future. Uh, she plays the plays. She has the identity of the villain Red Queen, uh, who is essentially the Wasp but unable to shrink. Uh, she's been in a very small right. number of comics, and I was very surprised they put her in this mm-hmm. film at all. And it and it, it looks like we're getting a drastically different version of that character because she doesn't seem to me to be being yeah, flagged definitely. as a future villain. It seems to me no. more she is going to be the Wasp as far yeah, as yeah. I mean, if if anyone listening wants to go and track that comic down, it is uh, a next issue seven, and <laughs> I own that comic, and it was about to become as valuable as it will ever be. So I might put it on eBay. <laughs> you mean you're not recommending um, me that one? <laughs> <laughs> if you could even find a copy as best as i can see she's yeah, she is basically janet in this yeah. particularly in terms of look but it does look like i mean conspicuously janet's face is not seen we get we get a flashback to hank and janet as ant-man and the wasp on a mission and janet's face is completely covered by the mask and then there is a close-up of a photo frame which is amazing where <laughs> young michael douglas's face and are they holding a baby hope but Janet's face is completely covered by a hat, and it's like it's like we haven't we haven't cast this character yet, but we keep mentioning her, so she's probably going to show up at a different point. I hope she turns up in the sequel wearing a giant hat. Like that. <laughs> what What do you guys think? I reckon we're I reckon we're due a Janet Van Dyne appearance in the future, and I do wonder whether she might not have aged, which would be a really interesting dynamic. If say Doctor Strange goes to the quantum realm or whatever it is and finds janet and brings her back it it seems like why would you have hope as the wasp and janet van dyne as the wasp in in the present day like because female superheroes we we, we need some affirmative action and it needs to happen yeah, but, <laughs> so what wasp and other wasp yeah, the wasps wasps core mm, it's like I, the green I think Evan- <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think eventually Lily will be a, a pretty much note perfect wasp, uh, and I don't think you know do her in, do the eighties version of Janet Van Dyne definitely bring her back for a happy ending for her and Hank maybe, mm. but I don't think they'll have two wasps on the go. I was I, I have to say I, I I would be I would have been surprised to hear myself saying this before going in, but yeah, I am massively looking forward to Evangeline Lily being the wasp, and I did not expect that to be the case because. <laughs> You know, she wasn't very good in Lost, really. <laughs> Eventually, Lily joined Lost as like a non-actress. I think she kind of, I think she got by on Lost, and I think she learnt her trade on Lost. And I always quite like her showing up, and she doesn't get the opportunity to be funny here. But I think she, I think she makes the most of everything she gets, and I think she's she's kind of like cool enough, but maybe not like complete cold-blooded killer like Black Widow that. I would really like to see her in in a brightly coloured costume flying around doing doing the same kind of stuff. Yeah, it sort of seems like all of Marvel's female characters have that kind of template, don't they, of like stone-cold woman who's sort of transcended their own emotions to become, you know, the, the archetypical strong female character. I think eventually Lily kind of sidesteps that a little bit well she gets she gets to have the big emotional moment she gets to have the big moment with her dad she gets to have the moment where she storms out and there's a little twinkle in her eye in that kind of like in that kissing scene at the end of the movie I think that's the thing I think the film needed slightly more of that because yeah I think maybe the problem is that there is just slightly that sense of and it is such a, a, a modern Hollywood thing as well of um, the woman being the sort of 
rolling her eyes but you know the men are all kind of messing around and being stupid and the woman kind of rolls her eyes at, at these silly men kind of thing and it's like yeah you, you can let the women have have a bit of fun as well and that was actually one of the nice things about winter soldier actually is that it's one of the few it's like black widow in that film is is the playful one you know mm-hmm. i think you, you got hints from from hope in this that she could be that but yeah, they're, they're hints, and it's it's that yeah that bit at the end with Scott. I think hinted at a bit more, and I did really like her first introductory scene with the ants on the floor. I thought was a was a nice introduction to her as well. Mm. But yeah, a little bit too much of the rest of it was uh, I'm rolling my eyes at you. You know, I, I don't think we should have hired you because I think you're an idiot, and I can go and do this myself. You know, uh, uh, for a lot of this movie, particularly in the middle act, I thought, wow. Scott Lang is the observer in this movie. Like, for most of the film, for most of that middle act, he is with Hank and Hope, who have got this kind of really messed up father-daughter relationship, which he is just kind of an observer to. And yes, it chimes with his relationship with his daughter being the real pivotal one, but it's not the father-daughter relationship that we actually get any focus on. And then there's the whole idea of him being the mentee of Hank, but actually, that's something that it actually means a lot more to Yellow Jacket, to Corey Stoll's character, that he kind of feels like he was thrown aside by Hank Pym and left having this unfulfilled father-son relationship. And in the final act, to start with, that is that is the main thing. And the reason why Yellow Jacket is attacking Scott is because he feels betrayed by Hank. And so for so much of this movie, I actually felt like Scott is an observer of all these more interesting things going around him, but he just happens to be the kind of, like, the magnet for all this chaos. Well, there's that there's that scene where he's literally observing the, yes. the big emotional yeah. moment. It's very heavy on the kind of parental theme, this film, isn't it? It feels like it knew that was what it was going for, and whether that came from Edgar Wright's script, uh, the writing corner script, sorry, or whether that was Peyton Reed saying, let's lean into this, you know, it's hard to hard to say for certain, but it's something that it, it's, it's a theme that Marvel returns to, like it's present in Iron Man and 1 and 2 and it's present in Thor and I think it tends to get good results for them. Um I think I I I do like it's it's not in the film loads but I I I do quite like the kind of the the Scott and Cassie father daughter thing. Uh and I don't know if part of that is, you know, having not long had a daughter myself, but <laughs> there's all there is always the danger of, you know, sort of annoying cute kid syndrome, but I think I the film gets around it okay. And I think the the moment that sells it for me is when he buys her the incredibly ugly toy and her reaction is that she loves it and it's like that's a little moment of understanding between father and daughter that I really liked at the dinner table where she's like are you looking for daddy he's like yeah yeah I'm trying to catch daddy I hope you don't find him (laughs) it's very hard to do I've said this before very hard to do cute kids and not do annoying kids and um, Ant-Man does a good job of it I think (laughs) But so the second, that most of the second acts of this movie, I would say, is just one big elongated training montage. It's probably like a solid 45 minutes in the middle of this film, right? That is just kind of like flicking from Scott uh, trying out his suit in the garden, or there's a montage where he's like working on fixing up the suit, or he's learning one thing from Michael Douglas, and he's learning another thing from Evangeline Lilly, and that kind of all builds towards that big Falcon sequence. Did you did, did it sag for you at all? Did you think that the movie lost any pace in the middle? It didn't sag for me, but because that was essentially a string of sketches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where they had a joke, and they were like, let's do this joke, and then we'll cut to a different joke, and it, you know, they kept it 
pretty lean. That's what that's one of the ways in which it reminds me of Iron Man is that there's nothing where they're just sort of slowing down and taking a moment to breathe. It's all just like beat, 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 you know, and it just keeps going. Yeah. I was surprised by how little the ants bothered me. Uh, I, I did <laughs> I did think when this film was being developed, I was like, it's surely like, okay, he's a guy who shrinks. So you can write out the communicates with ants bit. But it actually, I mean, it, it led to some really fun bits of shrunken down action sequences and like really in- inventive stuff i did i did predict immediately the moment that he named the ant anthony i was like <laughs> this film is going to have the most traumatic death of an ant since honey i shrunk the kids i was about to say since honey i shrunk the kids yeah. uh, that's great though i mean marvel killed a ca- killed a name character you know you can't you, can't, you <laughs> yeah. can't do that down too much um okay so if we all pretty much you know liked the training sequence is it fair to say that we all loved what it built to which was that Avengers sequence I actually think this movie did such a good job of I think in a way that sometimes Marvel can become a little bit dragged down by it this movie did I think a perfect job of saying hey look we exist in this universe but we're not gonna let it actually derail our movie and so there's the moment where Hank is explaining the job for the first time to Scott and (laughs) Scott just goes look I'm going to be honest the first thing I think we should do is call the Avengers like that got such a huge laugh yeah yeah, and it just sums up this film and this film's place in the MCU yeah (laughs) Um, and I just I just love as well because like a thing that really annoyed me about the the solo films after the first Avengers was people going oh why doesn't Captain America just go and call the rest of the Avengers why does why is why is Iron Man oh he's lost his suit and stuff why doesn't he just call the other Avengers and it's like that's not how a shared universe works <laughs> yeah um, and I actually I actually think it does like a much better job of actually doing that whole, whole MCU, MCU stuff compared to say Guardians of the Galaxy which I think for all that I like about that film and for all I really like about that film whenever it's tying into stuff from the other movies it's really clunky the Thanos stuff doesn't really work and we have to pause to have the Infinity Stones explained to us Whereas in this movie, when he was parachuting down to this old derelict Stark facility, <laughs> and suddenly you see that A on the roof, and if you've watched and the, the Avengers two months up. previously, you go, "Ah, oh, that's great!" <laughs> and if you don't, and, and if you haven't had it spoiled by the trailer as to which one of them, I mean, you kind of, if you were going to guess which one of them's going to show up, you know, it's going to be Falcon, but like he's, he is the obvious guess. But it does give you that moment of, "Oh, that's that's the the new base where they all." are which one of them is he going to run into <laughs> yeah um, and, that, and that whole sequence was really fun and again that's something that obviously came from Peyton Reed or certainly post Edgar Wright that whole sequence and it's really fun and it fits into the shared universe seamlessly it's nice to give Anthony Mackie something a bit more substantial to do yeah. prior to Civil War yeah. as well just to really kind of establish his position uh, loving his new costume as well um, I think it looked really cool <laughs> They do have to kind of nerf him a bit, though, don't they? Because, like, his role in this film is to get beaten <laughs> is to by get beat. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I quite like that, the kind yeah. of underestimating this guy and being like, who is this kind of, this idiot? I can sit, like, he, he immediately thinks he's sneaking in and he's like, no, I can see you down there, even though you're tiny. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then he kind of has that moment. And I think it's one of those, that we, you always talk about developing characters through action. There is so much character development for Scott Lang in that scene, more than probably in any of the training montage. I think it's a really, a really smart scene, both for this movie and for 
the Marvel Cinematic Universe to, to have it right yeah. there. I mean, it, it's the way he's like apologizing as he's fighting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, how, and how Falcon ends by saying, like, it's really important to me that Captain America never hears about this. <laughs> like, it's just, it's such a moment of joy, the whole Doesn't thing. Doesn't he say something like, oh, I'm a big fan, by the way? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we, the heist is then the next thing that has to happen. But before that happens, we get the reintroduction of um, Michael Pena and company. And I don't know about you guys, but I walked out of this movie going, oh man, Michael Pena stole that thing. He is <laughs> hilarious. And it seems like it seems to me like a case of material that was probably pretty solid on the page and a character just, or an actor finding a take on it and really, really taking it to a, to a great area. So he's Luis and there is a dumbfounded smile that comes across his face at various points in this movie that I just <laughs> I just giggle every time I think of it. It's wonderful. Yeah, like there wasn't a moment he was on screen that I wasn't enjoying. Like I think he's he gets two of my favourite jokes in the in the entire film, which are the bit where they're backing away in the van, like just had me in absolute hysterics. I could barely <laughs> breathe at that that scene. Um and where he the final montage uh, sort of flashback where he's he's talking about being in an art gallery and admiring a Rothko and just the sort of uh, the dissonance of that character being into modern art I found hilarious as well and that, and, and these of course were the sequences that I was referencing in the spoiler free section that again apparently Peyton Reed brought to the film were these Michael Pena talking about getting a piece of information and relaying it back to Paul Rudd. And I think the first one is amazing and really funny, but then the callback to actually end the movie on that. Um, and again, giving <laughs> you like a really crucial bit of like cinematic universe information to end the movie on, which is told through this really funny stylish sequence. It's, it's mm-hmm. almost like uh, it's the drunk history approach, isn't it? Of like lip syncing those people <laughs> to Michael Pena speaking. It's funny because I'd seen quite a lot of concern about Michael Pena going into it from people who don't really like him. And I didn't really know him before. It wasn't until afterwards that I discovered that um, he was the uh, the fake shake in American Hustle. But no, yeah, he, it was really funny. And yeah, those those the, the lip syncing sequences are a massive highlight of the film, you know, and, and wouldn't really work if it wasn't someone with that, you know, potentially slightly irritating, fast-talking style. Yeah, he's, he's just really good Peyton fun. Reed said that those sequences came together after Michael Pena came on set and he kind of figured out what he was going to be able to work with there. Yeah, you can, you can kind of... You, you can see that development, yeah, because you it's harder to imagine that being scripted from the outset without knowing who it was going to be because, like I say, yeah, it, it fits being a... A particular kind of person. Similarly, there's the um, the line. It's in one of the TV spots, but it's the line where he says, "I'm I'm really nervous because your girlfriend's really hot, and I'm sorry, beat man, but you are really beautiful." And it's like, yeah, just little bits like that. I can totally understand why people would be irritated by him. Yeah, but I think I was not irritated by him. I, I, I would imagine that if you don't like Ant Man, you probably don't like Michael Pena. I, 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 I don't, there's probably a couple of exceptions to that rule, but I came out of this movie thinking. Like if people, if there are people that have come out not liking that film, they've hated that character. They must have done. But I even liked his little friends. I mean, when I've seen Ti act before, I've been kind of just like completely, really not liked him. But I liked all of that gang. I spent the whole film trying to figure out who the the Russian guy was, uh, or Eastern European, where, wherever he was from, um, somewhere Eastern, somewhere generic Eastern European, I think. Um, but I recognised his face and couldn't place him until I went and wicked him afterwards. And he's the um, 
like fake cop shooter guy mm. in Dark Knight in the sequence when Jim Gordon gets fake assassinated. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's like the Joker's patsy or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I liked those. I mean, I, I have seen the concern expressed that you have kind of... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Three ethnic minority guys who are cliched criminals, um, which is a difficult one to refute. But it is, but I like actually, them as a little oddball gang. Actually, you know? what they do during the heist sequence is they all play a crucial part in pulling off the heist and they all proved themselves mm. competent. They also proved themselves heroic as well, which is sort of... Yeah. yeah. None of them are hardened crooks who, you know, they're not leeches on society. Like, they're, you know, ultimately, they're good guys. It's one of those things that you wouldn't bet an eyelid about if there was better representation generally across cinema, yeah. across blockbuster cinema, and in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, that's something... Mm. I think I mentioned this in my review, which is that it's good that they're... You know, there is representation in this film. It's a shame that the lack of it in the rest of it means that, like, the bulk of Marvel's... The the film with the most ethnic minorities in turns out to have them as thieves and crooks. But funny and awesome ones. Um, <laughs> we should... We should we're, we're approaching the point of the movie where we're actually getting to the big heist sequence, which is what all of it has been building towards. These kind of, like, running through these different circumstances and training him for these different... Like, he needs to be able to shrink and then get bigger so he can, like, die through keyholes and do all this kind of different stuff. And you would think that given that the heist is they are stealing from Corey Stoll's yellow jacket... Um, in fact, what's his character? He's Darren Cross, um, mm-hmm. who is who is, as I mentioned, this kind of like former protege of Hank Pym. But Hank Pym was forced out of the company when it became clear to Darren Cross that he maybe wasn't the protege he thought he was. And I guess the reason we haven't really spoken about him up until this point in the podcast is because the movie only really gives him one or two scenes before this. Yeah, he's barely in it, is he? For he like gets the scene where he explains that he's developing the yellow jacket technology and then he shrinks some guy into this weird like bubbling flesh goop which is creepy and nasty and actually mm. something that i thought oh i wonder if james gunn consulted on that scene that seems something that like, <laughs> james gunn would have really liked but yeah he's not really he's not really a part and it does as much as i think it makes sense in this movie it doesn't help that this is yet another marvel movie with yet another <laughs> forgettable villain I, I thought you were going to say yet another marvel movie um where the villain 
is a scientist businessman who has taken over the company and wants to use the established technology <laughs> to become a villain because it just yeah. literally is the plot of Iron Man. I mean, he is Obadiah Stane in yeah. virtually any, like even down to the kind of pseudo familial relationship with the. Yeah. Let's be. I think though. the only thing is that the ages yeah. are flipped, so it's like so he's mm-hmm. younger and Hank Pym's older. Uh, but apart from that, it's it's the same dynamic. Yeah. I mean, I really like Corey Stoll as an actor, and I think he I think he again does kind of the most with the material he is here. Marvel are really good at this at casting pretty well and even when they don't give great material. I mean, because they've got Judy Greer here, Judy Greer in this movie, who gets nothing to do, but whenever she's on screen, you're like, oh, I'm glad Judy Greer is there. I'm just, I'm just glad pretty, she's it's around. It's pretty much her Jurassic World role, isn't it? It's like, Judy Greer's been in these two massive films this year, and it's like... Well, it's, she it's she nice was also she, in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, not that you'd have noticed. Um, and, uh, and and someone said she, I haven't seen it but she's in Tomorrowland as well it's like her agent was bloody busy like 18 months ago um, and it's like it's really nice seeing her pop up in big films like this but can someone actually give her something to do because she's really good and it's like yeah. she, she just seems to be playing concerned moms especially, especially in a comedy movie in a movie that so heavily leans on comedy yeah exactly you would give think something. it would play more to her yeah. yeah but yeah back to back to Corey Stoll I like him but Yellow Jacket or Darren Cross up until that time. I think, it's, really I think it's just the film's got other things on its mind. Yes. And, you know, you know, unlike a lot of these kind of films, it's got three rather than two lead kind of hero-hero characters to work. And it's got um, Scott's gang and his sidekicks. So there's a lot for them to play with before they even need to really think about the villain. And so I think it's just that he's a bit of an afterthought. And they do give him a, a really cool and pretty scary looking costume. But even then, they put him in that so late in the film. You almost wonder why they've put well, it comes after the it end. comes after the heist. It comes after yeah. the heist. So it, it, to me, it was almost like, look, we have to have a comic book villain. Well, and I, and I think you do want two people shrinking. It's, I mean, yeah. you go back to like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, watching The Flash on TV. The, the best villain is the villain who can do what he can do, but maybe a little bit better. Um, and that's how you reverse mm. the odds. That is a well-worn comic trope of the villain being the sort of dark mirror of the hero. Like, even if it's not their original villain, tends to come up as their nemesis, like, you know, Venom to Spider-Man, for example. And and I felt like he was set up as kind of pretty much just generically evil. And then I was quite surprised when we got to that scene and Evangeline Lilly is like, Darren, no, it's the particles. They've been, the, the chemicals have been doing stuff to your brain. And I was like... Have they? I just thought he was a dick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, can't can't he just have been a dick? Yeah, but but <laughs> you you guys, I think I must have missed this line or just just let it wash over me. There is some explanation there about all that kind of stuff. Yeah, right right at the start of the film, when I think when Scott first gets the suit, uh, Hank Pym tells him you have to wear the strange helmet because the Pym particles interfere with your brain. Yeah, and then later on, he justifies the fact that he can't pull off the heist by saying. I've worn the suit too much and it's... Mm. it's Yeah, I do remember that bit. So they said, like, it's a very minor thread. Like, those are literally the only two appearances. But even even then, it doesn't quite fit because at that point in the film, Darren Cross hasn't used the suit. He's only just figured out how to shrink organic matter. It's fair to say it's not clear and not well handled. (laughs) Yeah, it gives you that moment of tension of, oh, maybe he's about to realise, but then he goes, oh, no, actually, I'm just going to shoot you myself. What do you think about all the rest of the heist stuff, though? That was, I I, I think there was some parts in there that I really enjoyed the the Scott shrinking action. 
and and some of the gags but i did think that that was maybe one of the sequences where i was like i could imagine this had been a little bit slicker and a little bit more cine literate if edgar wright had been doing it i I could have imagined a lot of references to other movies or you know direct visual kind of homages to other stuff or more just maybe more understanding of the high genre in that sequence it felt more of a it felt more of a straightforward superhero bit in that part than it did heist movies it's kind of despite the fact that it's got these you know these scenes with him kind of shrinking and stuff it's i think it's the part of the film that didn't really feel like it had um, its own identity and I think when you contrast it with the bedroom scene that immediately followed mm. um, that is a scene that completely has this film's own identity and, and isn't really like anything else with the possible exception of Honey I Shouldn't the Kids <laughs> um, so yeah the the heist I was I was a bit underwhelmed by it. The thing I know is that normally in, in a film if they show you something happening earlier on it's because they want to subvert it later on and have it not go to plan but generally speaking like the thing with like oh the ants are going to do this then we'll get through this part we'll turn this off and go through that in the small window up until they get to the yellow jacket suit and it turns out they've just gone straight into a trap everything goes exactly as planned and it's a bit like you know it was a very the sequence was quite rote in how it was portrayed and how it proceeded like there weren't many surprises in it yeah it's like there's there's a small bit of jeopardy with the bit with the where the cops are going to discover them in the van and yeah, it's like ve- oh will he will he very will he manage- bit of yeah and it's like you kind of think with that scene oh is he going to manage to shut off the grid in time and what i expected to happen there was that he wouldn't shut off the grid in time and so scott would have to find another way through and instead what actually happens is they just manage to shut off the grid in time before the police come in and he goes through and it's like oh okay so we didn't really need to worry about those <laughs> but, 30 but what all before. that did lead to was this kind of this perfect heist that was playing out in exactly how they wanted to and then when he dropped down and Corey Stoll knew it was happening all along, I actually was i was surprised. I didn't see that coming. I thought, oh, oh, okay, that's interesting. You still could have done that moment if the heist had gone wrong and they'd, you know, worked it out anyway. In fact, if anything, it would have had more impact if they'd worked hard to get to that point. Yeah. I just yeah. kind of think for, for a movie that was a heist movie, the heist itself wasn't that interesting. And, right. and if anything, the, the earlier burglary of Hank's house was much more interesting yeah, as that, like a that, heist break-in scene. That was, the idea that was of this fun, yeah. as a heist film was just marketing, really, wasn't it? It was like when they say, you know, I thought it was a fancy film and Captain America is a political thriller. And it's like, well, it wasn't really a political thriller, was it? It was, you know... <laughs> oh, I mean... I think it is a heist movie because it does it does do all of that planning. Whether you think the heist doesn't completely play out, it's it is setting up a criminal who has a small time job at the start and then goes through some training and planning to put this thing together and then goes in and executes it and something goes wrong and then it leads to something else. I mean, I, like structurally, it does have all of the heist movie stuff in there. And I, I mean, I do think Captain America is a political thriller. It's half a superhero movie and half a political thriller, but it is. And I think uh, Guardians of the Galaxy is a space opera, and Iron Man Three is a buddy cop comedy. They, they, well, yeah, I think they again, do it, it's... but they, it's all it's always a little bit watered down because, as well yeah, as that's... it has that template, that's also fitting onto the Marvel Studios superhero template. Water, watered down is the phrase I was about to use. In that they have, it's always a fusion of genres, isn't it? Yeah. So you kind of you get something that looks like a heist film, but isn't a pure heist film. Mm. There is a moment right at the end of that sequence. 
uh, of this whole heist sequence where kind of Ant-Man and Yellow Jacket have already departed the building and well it's two moments in a row and two moments that I didn't see coming whatsoever and that key <laughs> that key fob had been embedded <laughs> in the movie in like two or three different scenes yeah. Where he'd been like leaving, he'd taken it out of his jacket to get through the door, and he'd like you'd seen it in the house. And see, I thought initially the only reason for that was because when you saw it the first time, it was a recognisable thing. So that when you then saw those keys, you knew that he was in yeah. Hank Pym's house. But even then, I was like, well, of course we know he's in Hank Pym's house. We know exactly <laughs> whose house it is. Why well, that's the genius of it, though, isn't yes. it? Like the, yeah. the best setups happen without you realising that. I'm yeah. not gonna lie. When Hank Pym goes and he. And and he hands it to um, Hope and he says, it's not a key fob. And I was like... And everyone started laughing. It was like, it's not really a key fob. And everyone started laughing. I was like, what is... Oh! <laughs> and then, literally, as it clicked for me, this enormous tank bursts out of the walls of the building. It's, the thing I like about that is the disparity of, like, he just thought... What can I carry around with me all the time that would be useful? And it's like, yeah, it's I'll a take tank. a tank with me because that, can you I... know, that will get me out of almost any situation. Can I pour some annoying cold water on what was admittedly a great scene and a spectacular moment by be- having a really massive quibble about it? The whole point of the the whole pim particle shrinking thing is that as well as shrinking the thing, it's supposed to increase the density because it me- that's what means that <laughs> that he's strong when mm-hmm. he's little. So should that tank not have been impossibly heavy when it was shrunk? That that is the get out. You like you know they say every every site every superhero film has one thing that shouldn't work, but you have to accept it. It's that. Yeah. But then I mean, I mean and then right after that moment I was completely shocked by the building exploding in itself as well. <laughs> I thought it was a, another really fun great visual gag which is kind of playing all the all the, the tank gag and the building exploding is playing out at the same time as I think we get the first uh, like I liked all of these small action sequences, you know, they kind of the, like you know they're talking about they're running along the gun and punching the guys who worked at, at Pim at, at Pim's company and um, oh, and actually, there is a there's a very interesting article on Film Divider. If you want to see the difference between how Peyton Reed approached those sequences and Edgar Wright did in his early test footage, Film Divider have done an article directly comparing those two pieces of footage and how the directors handled those action sequences dif- differently. Um, it's very, very interesting, particularly if you are interested in the whole would Edgar Wright have made a better movie out of this thing. But yeah, the, 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 the one that I really liked was that one happening inside the suitcase with kind of like the lifesavers <laughs> flying around them and Siri turning on. Oh, the, the Siri <laughs> joke was brilliant. It was, and it was just, it was. It, I think it was the first moment that kind of, for me, fulfilled the promise of the trailer of the playing around on the train track, which was, yes, Scott was small, but he was also fighting with someone else who was small, and that meant you were dealing with just a completely different landscape, a completely alien landscape, which was Land of the Giants, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids kind of thing, in a, <laughs> around all these giant items that then become the setting for a really interesting fight. That sequence in particular, like, this is the first film I've seen since Tron Legacy that I thought watching it in 3D is actually improving it. Because that, like, the 3D gives you a sense of the scale that you normally... Just Particularly in that bath scene earlier in the film, yeah, the yeah, first exactly. time he shrinks, mm-hmm. really sort of just gives you this really confusing 
change in scale yeah. that yeah i think the 3d yeah really, like i yeah. i find 3d works best when it's conveying depth over anything else and that mm. like that really worked in those sequences where suddenly the bath is this giant expanse yeah. of of space and what i actually really liked about this movie which i think it's a very very rare thing to happen in marvel movies but i thought this movie built i thought it really built to a climax like i thought the second act stuff was fun uh but normally i kind of think that the marvel movies make most of their hay in the middle act and then kind of captain america's ship falls into the ocean and that and that happened or iron man has a scrap with another guy in an iron suit and it's pretty generic and that's the end Mm -hmm. of the movie this uh, kind of felt like it was all building to the heist but aware that there is some of this footage from the from the house that i was almost expecting that to be an earlier scene like an earlier showdown before the heist because Mm. it felt so small but obviously the whole idea was for yellow jacket to you know at that point be driven mad by jealousy and wanting to destroy scott by finding his daughter doing it in her bedroom and you get this as I say, kind of almost super low stakes. There's no cities blowing up. There's no there's no huge mass scale <laughs> devastation. Nothing is dropping out of the sky. No, it's just two guys in a little girl's bedroom who are shrinking and growing kind of moment to moment. We're going to having... have to rephrase that, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them defeats the other by finally getting inside him. And... <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I just thought it was a really... It struck a chord to me with what Kevin Feige had been saying in the press in recent weeks about Spider-Man and how, for Spider-Man, it's just as important for him whether he gets back home in time for Aunt May or gets his homework done as it is him beating a villain. That, like, the sca- the, all the stakes can be really low as long as they're high to the characters. Mm-hmm. And the stakes felt really high for Scott in that sequence. Um, and especially with the whole idea of the the regulator being bedded in there, the stakes felt high in the... I mean, I knew it was coming that Scott was going to have to turn that regulator off at some point. But that whole sequence felt... It felt big enough, no pun intended, but it, <laughs> it, it also had an intimacy and just a change of pace that for me was interesting and exciting and crucially really funny. You spoke about that second payoff to the Thomas the Tank Engine joke where it literally flight that was amazing <laughs> that, i like that even more than the tank yeah. bit. <laughs> that was just yeah <laughs> well yeah like i thought the th- the third act and specifically the the bedroom fight had kind of it had the best moments and it had the the best jokes it also came on the back of yellow jacket flying into the fly thing yeah yeah <laughs> like it, it had the best effects as well because it had yellow jacket and that man properly fighting for the first time and it sort of most marvel films you look back on, as you say, the sort of middle section as having the the best bits in the third act kind of... Going through the motions. You know, yeah, going through the motions to the inevitable conclusion. And this one, I felt it was like uphill all the way. Yeah, I, I, it really it really peaked for me in that sequence, I think, um, emotionally and on an action level. Um, mm-hmm. It was a shame that, as you were talking about having a movie with three leads, that it kind of, you you, z- z- you lose two of them. But actually, I think it felt right for a, a movie that is called Ant-Man, where Scott Lang is Ant-Man. It felt right, and I thought Bobby Cannavale being introduced into that scene works really well. And I, I like that subversion of kind of Hank having these two kind of protégés, and one that, it, or well, three protégés really as well, in, in his <laughs> own daughter, and then Darren and Scott. And and then the, on the flip side of that, that Scott is battling to be like the father of choice. 
Mm-hmm. And the re- and the responsible one there, and I, I thought it worked really nicely bringing Bobby Cannavale into that into that scene, um, trying to protect his stepdaughter. But yeah, as well. like that that dynamic was good, just because like it's very common in in movies for sort of step parents to be portrayed as the objectively bad one. In like in this in this film, you get a sense that ultimately everyone's just looking out for Cassie in their own way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that you know that's a nice dynamic, especially at the end when they all agree that you know they're all there for Cassie in the end, like having dinner as a nice family, and it you know it's a it's a nice moment. I'm not sure whether it made it into our Spider-Man podcast last week, but I, I was telling you guys about how I really like Spider-Man's action sequences and his um, his wall crawling and web slinging, and that it feels like it just feels visually different to all the other heroes, and just the way that Spider-Man is able to contort his body and fling himself through the streets. And yeah. I think that, that there was a similar case here that I loved the fluidity to the action that it could feel fast paced and suddenly one character was big and then one character was small and then they were both small and then suddenly one of them was picking up some tiny thing and flinging it but then the character might be big in a second so who cares that he's had Thomas the Tank Engine thrown <laughs> at him. Um, I, I thought that Peyton Reed did a really good job with the just the I think they did a really good job with the action sequences in general and I'm sure Marvel have some incredible second unit set up um, but I, I thought the the vision of two guys who can shrink and enlarge fighting I've used it again uh, was um, was was really was really well realized mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> I have nothing to add except that I can care yeah. what did you guys think of the quantum realm when Scott eventually shrinks down and defeats yellow jacket but yeah can we can we call it the microverse i'm not sure if that's tied in with the fantastic four license i think that from from what i've heard uh from payson reed interviews he's been referring to it as the quantum realm and there has been get intimation from kevin feige that that is a sequence that introduces the kind of concepts that will be explored in doctor strange like kaleidoscopes and stuff <laughs> i was just gonna say yeah so just sort of like kaleidoscopic camera <laughs> work did you like did you like that sequence it was fine. It looked good. It didn't really achieve anything, but it looked. Good. I, was, I was a little bit disappointed because I'd heard about, I'd heard it talked up as a two thousand and one esque sequence, and given no, the, it wasn't really given that. the kind of effects that you've got, I kind of wanted a little bit more than the kaleidoscope stuff. And even the kaleidoscope stuff didn't stick around for long enough. And then I was expecting that maybe we would see Janet down there. And- well, yeah, that's the, uh, that was the surprise for me. That, that I, I assumed that that scene was there. And we would for us to see her and to see that she was. Still I alive. saw an interview with Peyton Reed where he says something like, "There is a clue in that sequence about Janet," and all I can think is either he thinks there is and he's just being way too subtle, yeah. or there isn't and he's just confused. Because I, as soon as that started, I was looking very hard. Is it the, the colour scheme? Who knows? Who knows? Like all the only thing I can think is his version of there is a clue in that sequence is how how Scott escapes which is by using Chekhov's reg- regulator. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, you know, just nothing else in that. I, I'm look- looking forward to watching that part again more than anything else in the rest of the film. Well, I'll, t- I wanna, I'll tell you what's happening right now. Detail. There, is, there is probably like half of our listeners who have seen the film and have just not missed this clue whatsoever and are screaming <laughs> into their headphones, shut up, you idiots, it was that thing. Can you just tweet us and tell us because we missed it, guys. We, really, we just missed it. And I, and I quite liked, I quite liked the the way that they brought him back. Um, I, I I was sat there thinking, how are they going to do it? And I'd forgotten about his fun little chips. Yeah. 
they they are a they are a they are a very convenient thing to place in the movie, I would say. <laughs> but they but they do make for some for some great sequences or allow the film to pull off a couple more tricks that I might tell not you, be able the, to avoid. The thing I was expecting in this film was for the climactic battle to feature one of them growing to sort of giant man size. Yeah. I was very surprised mm. that didn't happen. Yeah, they must be yeah, saving that. that. He had a thing that was for shrinking and growing. I yeah. know he did use the growing thing on objects, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, we know from the comics that pin particles do that, and I can't see the MCU having that great of a break with the with the continuity of the comics in that sense. Mm. Yeah, because you know they're, the they're a standard is, MacGuffin. So, but it wasn't it wasn't in any way telegraphed. So I don't think maybe we might have expected it because we know that they can. But the film didn't plant anything that suggested, other than the fact that he had these discs that could make things grow. There was nothing that really suggested. Well, that, that that's the thing. Like it, use them in the it would have direction. been entirely consistent and therefore surprising for it to have happened in the final act. I think that kind of brings us mostly to the end of the, the the main narrative of the movie, but in a way that we didn't really have much to talk about with the stings on the end of Age of Ultron. <laughs> I feel like we've got quite a bit to reference here. So that first that the, the mid credit sting where Hank takes Hope to see the wasp costume that he's been hiding the whole time. Wasp sting. Oh, wasp, amazing <laughs> sting. Oh. <laughs> I really liked that because I was sat the whole way through the movie going, "Let Evangeline Lilly do something. Let her do something. That would be great." And the the specific line of you know I've uh, you know I kind of figured out that all this time that I've been developing this for you, and Evangeline Lilly kind of looks at the suit semi towards the camera and goes. Well, it's about damn time. I'm not sure whether that's the exact line. That's how I remember <laughs> that it. That is the exact line. I really love that as a as a kind of an admission of Marvel holding their hands up and going, "Yeah, we we get it. We did do that, but we are starting to address it." Honest guys, like we got two women on the Avengers, and we're introducing Wasp, and we got a Captain Marvel movie. Fair play, we we are going to admit this This has been a blind spot, but we are addressing it. And I was just excited to uh, for the prospect of future movies with Wasp in that costume. Yeah. I, God, I hope she they shows need, up in to, Civil War. Well, yeah, they need to get her on the Avengers as quickly as possible because she's so much better than Scarlet Witch. Uh, yeah, and the costume's all... I really liked the look of the costume as well. That's the best Wasp... Yeah, yeah, that's the best Wasp costume like she yeah. famously has a lot of different costumes and and that's the because she's a fashion that's... designer yeah <laughs> but james i know you you had a slightly different take on that line yeah i'm like i don't think you get to do a film where you've spent the entire time marginalizing women and reducing them to their roles as wife or daughter or mother uh, literally every female character who appears is one of those three things and then you get to nod at the audience and say, oh, you know, we're going to let her be a superhero next time. Like, there's no reason that they couldn't have put Wasp in this film. I really think she should have been. You either do it and and collect the plaudits, or you don't and apologise. Like, you can't nod and wink at the audience when you're just as bad as the previous films. Yeah. I think that's fair. I, I do. I, I do think that's entirely fair, and I, I don't think that reading's completely off. I kind of agree with everything you're saying. Obviously, I enjoyed the idea of the wasp being in a film. I just wish it had been this film. Uh, but I also yeah. liked the 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 idea that that was the attitude of this character, 
and that she wasn't going to be fucking around like Scott has been. She was going to be taking on this thing and she was going to be nailing it from word go. Yeah. I was just like, yeah, you could, you could, you could stick her in that costume at the start of any of the forthcoming Marvel movies. And I'd be like, yeah, that is a character who I, I've seen all the like establishment of how those powers work. She's now got wings, so she's kind of better than he is to begin with because she's got an extra power. I'm on board. Um, have you did you did mention that there is no female character in this movie who is defined by any of those other roles? But may I take you back to the pre-movie sting, which is that flashback with John, John Slattery's <laughs> oh, yes. Howard Stark and generic evil Shield guy who's actually Hydra because I presume they couldn't cast a younger Robert Redford in the end. They went for him instead. And Hayley Atwell, back again, yeah, who yeah, is yeah. fast becoming like a, a an alternate Nick Fury. Yeah, no, that's the, but that's the, that I, I feel like that's the role that she's fulfilling in the sense of if she shows up, it reminds you that there's this bigger picture going on. Yeah. And she can comfortably fit into all the different time periods in a way that even Nick Fury can't. So it's great. It's like, yeah, you, you can set something at any point in the history of the marvel universe she, up until she Civil War or anyway. yeah um I, I really like i mean it was only short but i really liked that scene i would love to see more 1980s shield stuff <laughs> even though I, I i i again i i know that the circumstances are because john Sattery was cast first in iron man 2 but it is a little weird that you have two howard starks at different ages uh, but Haley atwell <laughs> can play peggy at all the different ages <laughs> yeah. not that i'm complaining about Haley atwell getting to play right. peggy all the time and actually i can't even really complain about um john Stattery playing He's howard great. stark because those couple of lines i mean it was just so roger <laughs> but um so much fun and i absolutely loved the de-aging special effects that they did particularly on michael douglas because i think we've seen that was from, remarkable i think we've seen from <laughs> Haley atwell in the winter soldier and now in this movie they're not fantastic at aging up characters this was much better than it was in winter soldier but still it was just like add some jowls and she's old that de-aging stuff I was like wow I'm looking at Gordon Gecko, or I'm looking at Michael Douglas in Fatal Attraction I thought it was incredible again like I don't want to bring up Tron Legacy all the time <laughs> when you go back and look at young Jeff Bridges in that film who just looks like a, a computer character like it looks like a video game cutscene and compare it to this which is you know, you could get a magnifying glass out, and you still wouldn't see the pixels. And it was—I I mean, I've kind of—you've seen what they, seen what they did in Terminator Genesis this summer with Arnie, but um, <laughs> I've not seen it. I, I thought even that looked a little bit more CG. This, I was just like, this does feel like I'm like—I mean, because late '80s Michael Douglas is kind of peak Michael Douglas, late '80s, early '90s, anyway. You kind of mm. that streak mm-hmm. from Fatal Attraction through to Falling Down. Yeah, I just, I just thought it was brilliant. I couldn't. I, I almost like I was like, wow, I'm not concentrating on Haley Atwell. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Will never happen again. I promise you that, Haley. <laughs> You're listening. <laughs> um, should we go back to the stings at the end? Yeah. The end end sting, which confused the hell out of me in the cinema. Since discovered really? that it is actually a. It's basically it basically came from Kevin Feige seeing one of the dailies on Captain America: Civil War and saying, "Oh, that would actually fit perfectly at the end of Ant Man as a tease, given that Civil War yeah, is the next cause, movie." Because we came out of the screening convinced that that was a specially shot scene that was going to fit between Ant Man and Civil War. Well, just because that's normally what happens. 
what did you what did you think of it or what did you make of it what do you think it, it it's telling us about civil war or ant-man's place in civil war if you were putting together those jigsaw pieces what are you guessing comes next i mean so it's clearly placing ant-man like it clearly happens after whatever ideological split is going to happen during civil war or maybe so the, that puts, the start of it, the rumblings of it, at the very least. Yeah, so that puts Falcon and Captain America on one side and Ant-Man alongside them. Because what do they say? They say this would have been much easier a week earlier. Yeah. And there's something about, oh, we definitely can't call Stark. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Maybe Stark has gone to the government Which, at that stage, so maybe it's not so much that Cap and Tony have already fallen out, but it becomes clear that Cap is aligned with someone that they are not. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've got this suspicion about the split in Civil War, and I know, I know they have already said that there is going to be an event that is going, and that re- the registration thing is going to be a part of it, but I still think that before that happens, there is going to have been a split... Um, ideologically between Cap and well I mean not ideologically but between Cap and Tony based around the fact that Tony is going to discover that Bucky killed his parents and that Cap is off trying to find and reconcile with Bucky and I think they're going to fall out over Black that. Panthers around who I think has been has been talked about as kind of being like maybe a pivot between those two characters maybe playing more of the Spider-Man they, des- they described Black Panther as having a third viewpoint Mm. I mean, I just think they're not going to be friends even before the split over the registration, and I think that that's going to be the reason. Yeah. And so, and so, the intimation is that they. That, I, I'm not sure why I couldn't quite piece it all together, but that they now have the Winter Soldier, and they need to do something about it, and they need some help, and that the person who might have the ability to help them in this situation is Ant-Man. Yeah, I think... And I think it's something to do with extracting him from where he is. Yeah, they need to extract him and hide him and, you know, shrinking him as well. Was his arm stuck in a vice or something? Was that how he was He seemed to be locked up. Well, he was beaten up, so it looked like they'd fought him to to a standstill. Or maybe someone else had captured him and they'd shown up. Kind Potentially, of yeah. Beaten the guys who'd locked <laughs> him up or something. Yeah. Um, and it also chimes with this with the great sequence at the end of the movie where Michael Pena is doing that that walk and talk, and it becomes clear that Falcon is looking for Ant Man, which must be mm-hmm. kind of like a slight crossover in the timelines of those two movies, I mm. would guess. Well, possibly, or it could just be that immediately after the encounter, Falcon wants to find out who this guy yeah. is, yeah. and so is is going looking for him that yeah, way. And then it could be that by the time of Civil War, he has found him and yeah. can easily. Contact yeah, that's how him. I read yeah. it. And I'm not sure if you all liked the uh, that the kind of the reference, like, oh, we're looking for I'm looking for a guy. Oh, you know, there's loads of them out there now. We got one who, one who swings, <laughs> one who crawls up walls. Yeah, yeah. Nice. I, I did a little. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I didn't spot any other references there. So was that was that the only? Was it just Spider Man that was referenced? I th- I think they were just dropping Spider Man. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I did, I did, I did wonder whether we'd get any more. But yeah, Spider Man is good enough, isn't it? I also mm-hmm. thought it would have been great if you just found out that Scott Lang used to work for Oscorp or something. All kinds of possibilities there, but um, I don't think it's probably not fair to start criticising Marvel for not dropping enough Easter eggs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, well, I think that brings us to the end of our conversation. I think generally positive, right, everyone? Yeah, yeah. it's an enjoyable film. I'm looking forward to seeing it again. Yeah, and me that's too. that's always the, you know... <laughs> the telling thing really I think it's limited a little bit by its scope but it feels like one of those first movies like I say I think it feels like like James said we, we, I mean, we came out of the movie together saying 
it feels comparable to the first Iron Man. And that's what I meant about saying as well, I'd love to have seen an Edgar Wright movie that did this way back at the start mm. of Phase 1. It it feels different to anything else that's come in Phase 2, and I think that's because mm-hmm. so, there were so many sequels, But and Guardians of the Galaxy was the fresh one, but that was a team movie set in outer space. This This felt like... This felt like what they were doing four or five years ago, and um, it was a little bit smaller than everything that's going on now. But um, well done. Yes, I think Very it. Good. I think it. Um, I think it hit as high as it possibly could. I think it had a lower ceiling than a lot of the other Marvel movies, but it it got to that ceiling consistently. Yeah, yeah. Without having to use a, a growing <laughs> to do so, or stepping on a giant ant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Seb James, what are your Ant Man comic book recommendations? Okay, so I'm going to recommend, well, um, so Ant-Man is a Marvel Comics heist comedy featuring a character themed around insects. So I'm going to recommend a Marvel Comics heist comedy featuring a character themed around insects, uh, which is The Superior Foes of Spider-Man, okay. which you might because yeah, you might have already heard of it because of the fact that it was it was launched as vaguely a tie into Superior Spider-Man, except Spider-Man barely appears. Which I read. It is about a new incarnation. It will make sense to me. I'm not sure about that. (laughs) Yeah, no, it won't. (laughs) Um, It's about a new incarnation of the Sinister Six, um, except there's only five of them. Um, And it's you might have heard me mention this before when we talked about the aborted Sinister Six movie, and I said if they had to do it, the only thing they could base it on and have it be any good would be Superior Foes of Spider-Man. uh, yeah, so it is a comic about a bunch of supervillains. Um, it's ex- it's an extremely complicated heist slash backstabbing twist story. Like there, it, like every issue features a pulling the rug from under you moment in terms of the narrative. Um, but it is funny. It's clever. It's character driven. It's entertaining. It's honestly one of the most fun things that Marvel have published in years. Um, it's in total, it's seventeen issues long, but. I think two of the issues were fill-ins um, when things were getting delayed. The, 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 the main series is by writer Nick Spencer and artist Steve Lieber. Um, if you try the first volume, which is six issues long, I think you'll enjoy it. The only problem is it doesn't really tell a self-contained story. Um, you will get to the end of the sixth issue and you will either you won't have liked it but if you like it you'll want to immediately carry on because the 17 issues essentially tell one big long self-contained story um but it's 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 split into three volumes so try volume one first six issues it's tremendous fun i can't see you not liking it and just in terms of tone and spirit while it is about characters who are much more full-on villains than um and make no mistake the lead character boomerang not captain boomerang (laughs) from the suicide squad but boomerang is a flat-out villain no question question um so it, it doesn't have that moral ambiguity of ant-man but other than that tonally and style wise i i think you'll see the similarities okay. and is there a reason why you haven't recommended an ant-man comic you- <laughs> because i've barely ever read any ant-man <laughs> comics <laughs> fair enough have you read many ant-man comics james uh i've read enough to know that i can in good conscience recommend that you go and read any of them <laughs> he doesn't work on the page then well or is he more of an he- avengers character it's it's a bit like Guardians in that there are no Ant-Man comics that accurately capture the spirit of the movie. I'm sure there will be. Like, this time next year, you won't be able to move for excellent Ant-Man comics. 
Well, there is there is a recently started run that seems that is about Scott Lang. Yeah. That seems very specifically designed tied into the movie. Coincidentally, it's written by Nick Spencer, who wrote who wrote Superior Photos. I was, photos of I was about to mention yeah. that, but the problem with that is I don't think they've completed the story arc yet. Right. So it's a bit. No, it's only about you know, two issues. Why would in, you recommend them? Or when so, so Marvel Unlimited. <laughs> so based on the facts that you read and enjoyed some 60s Marvel comics last time. Mm-hmm. I am going to point you in the direction of a relatively famous uh, mini-arc from the Avengers comics of the 60s. Okay. This is... It's four issues. I mean, again, as with Amazing Spider-Man that you read, it's kind of hard to group these into a discrete arc. But this is issues 57, 58, 59, and 60 of Avengers Volume 1. Right. uh, From 1968. Uh, it's four four stories featuring an Avengers team that I think you will be almost universally familiar with, because uh, it's you know it's uh, Hank Pym, uh, the Wasp, uh, Black Panthers in there, uh, Captain America, Iron Man, show up. Uh, Vision is a fairly major part of these. This I think fifty eight is the famous even an Android can cry issue. Oh, amazing! And Ultron is a villain in some of it. Yeah. So, I mean. The reason I recommend it is because it's the origin of Yellow Jacket in his Hank Pym guys. Mm. Um, and I think that's a kind of interesting jumping off point for Hank Pym in this film rather than Scott Lang. Like, it's tough to, to recommend Scott Lang, especially because yeah. he debuted in sort of the uh, what the period when Avengers wasn't in a great place and he was in the Fantastic Four for a while. But in terms of solo series, there's not much you can point point to and hey i've read some scott lang in alias so well quite yeah. take that box <laughs> that's pretty much the only comic i've read with scott lang yeah in. indeed <laughs> yeah so yeah this is it's just a little mini avengers arc that i think you'll you'll find interesting for a lot of different reasons yeah and the focus on hank pym especially in the the final two issues is interesting as a viewer of this film great well um i look forward to those and we've got well, we've got kind of like a bonus period of um between this podcast and the ant-man mini given that we've got the extra episode next week and actually a little, little uh, bit of information for the listeners i'll be on holiday in tenerife so i might read all of these <laughs> comics on the beach um and come back i won't be suntanned because i just burn but maybe i'll come back burnt <laughs> but like uh rejuvenated by, by my uh spider-man and avengers comics <laughs> <laughs> okay we'll move on now to our final section now which is the pitch and I know a lot of you guys are still going to be very upset that this wasn't directed by Edgar Wright. It's very sad. We all wanted to see an Edgar Wright-directed superhero movie. But what I want to know is that, say, Edgar Wright is still in the market to do a superhero movie. If you could pick one for him to direct and make now, what would it be? James, do you want to go first this week? I would have Edgar Wright directing a Dazzler film. because Marvel has already proven that if you throw a load of 70s pop songs into a film uh, you get something good (laughs) because that is the formula that worked for Guardians so if you get Dazzler you can bring in sort of 70s and 80s disco and electronica Edgar Wright is always great at choosing a soundtrack Uh, Dazzler has a very visual power which is that she transmutes sound into light and I can imagine Edgar Wright making you know a lot of hay with that Uh, and I just think as a character, she's never going to turn up in the in the X-Men franchise because she's too sort of esoteric. And if they do, they're not going to do anything useful with her. But 
She's perfectly suited to comedy, great visuals, action, music, everything Edgar Wright loves. A solo movie in the kind of in the vein of Deadpool that doesn't quite yeah. chime with all the rest of this stuff, but Yeah, exactly. And you can have Wolverine turn up to tell someone to fuck off in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's that actually um I'm I'm sold on that idea already. So you've got a you've got a tough task here, Seb. Can you do better than a Dazzler movie? Well, I I think I can get you on side by suggesting a character that you're actually familiar with. Um, so my line of thinking was um, obviously after Scott Pilgrim, I think if if Edgar Wright is going to do anything else comic book related it should really be something that plays up the fact that its source material is a comic book and actually be aware of itself as a think comic I book. know where you're going um, <laughs> yeah so i started to think about where i could go with that and the natural um answer seemed to be animal man uh, <laughs> you were, i don't know i thought you were just going to say a may whitman squirrel girl movie and i was i was sold <laughs> <laughs> oh damn it no yeah i think it should be a may whitman squirrel girl movie um, that's yeah. definitely what I think it should be. I'm, I'm going to change. Can I? No, change because then I, then I, I win the pitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should win the pitch for that, even though it's yeah. not your idea. No, yeah. So no, I, I, I would go for Animal Man because um, actually, along similar lines to James, I think um, it would be really interesting to see him play with the visuals of him using his powers. Um, and I just think you know that is a character. I think the, the very kind of down to earth, everyday take. Um, of Grant Morrison's comics combined with you know the weird otherness of being a superhero is something that would fit Edgar Wright's style very well and I'm not quite sure if we would definitely go down the route of having him be aware that he is in fiction but I think you could play with comic book tropes and I think you could have a setup whereby not that he's aware that he's a fictional character in a movie but have him be a comic book character in a movie that's they should they should put comic book characters in movies that's a good idea <laughs> no but i think you could have it in a world where animal man is both a comic book character and a real superhero and play with that a little bit and i think if you're going to do something like that edgar wright is the man for the job ah i really like both of those ideas like i genuinely think that i would love to see what edgar wright could do with each of those ideas but having said that, I'm going to award the win to myself this week because the May Whitman <laughs> Squirrel Girl movie. I mean, I'll give an executive producer credit to Al Kennedy uh, for coming up with a suggestion <laughs> on a previous podcast. But yeah, I, I, I win this week. Screw you guys. I'm the winner. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh. Um, I feel robbed. <laughs> no, you're, both your ideas were genuinely very good, like better than you've come up with on most weeks, to be fair. <laughs> that mine was amazing. We did engage with the concept this week. You did. That's always to nice. Subtly undermining it, <laughs> uh, and it's and it's it's not it's not worked out well for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what lessons that teaches? This is why we go for the joke answers. <laughs> okay well that is it for this week we'll be back next Wednesday with that bonus Comic Con news special which all three of us are on on board for we actually recorded it before we even recorded this that's a lot behind the curtain Um, if you are enjoying the show then please do subscribe on iTunes Stitcher Player FM or your podcast app of choice and if you've already subscribed then please leave us a rating or review Um, you can find us on Facebook on Twitter at CU underscore podcast and send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com you can find previous episodes of the podcast at cinematicuniverse.libsyn.com and because this is a Film Divider podcast on filmdivider.com. And don't forget to go check out that article um, on filmdivider.com comparing the two versions of Ant-Man. It's very interesting indeed. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.
How did we get this far? Human beings have an immeasurable desire to discover, to invent, to build. Our future depends on us furthering these ideals, a responsibility that rests on the shoulders of generations to come. But with every new discovery, there is risk. There is sacrifice. And there are consequences. Cinematic Universe returns in three weeks' time with Josh Trank's Fantastic Four.